Hillside, how are you doing today? <clears throat> good, good. It's good to be home here. Um, my name is Jason Noble. For those of you, some of you know me, some of you know me well, um, and that's a good thing. Um, some of you have no idea who I am, and that's also a good thing. Um, so my family and I have been a part of Hillside for about 17 years. There's my son back there waving, hey, Jaden. He's going to jump up and down the whole service. Awesome. I'm, I'm glad I saw him early so that he can finally, he can sit down and rest. Um, so yes, we've been a part of Hillside for a long time. And, uh, for about almost 15 years of that time period, I was the children's pastor here at Hillside. Um, yeah. Woo. Who said that? All right. Stop. Okay. So, um, I love that, uh, Cassie and Mike, uh, sang that song today. They were both a part of that ministry. I baptized Cassie, still one of the great moments of, of, um, you know, one of the great memories of my time here at Hillside is getting to baptize a, a bunch of kids over the years. And uh, my family's still involved at Hillside. As a matter of fact, they were a real big part of the VBS. My wife and my two teenage daughters um, served in the VBS and my seven-year-old son participated in it. And I love um, what the, that team is doing. I turned uh, that ministry about two years ago over to Pastor Anthony and the children's uh, staff team and the children's volunteer team. And they've done great things with it. And I'm very excited to continue to be a part of Hillside um, for now and for the future. Um, so we are still around here. A few people have said, hey, I haven't seen you a whole lot recently. Well, um, I've been traveling a lot on the weekends and it's not for work. Somebody said, oh, work must be going well. well I don't travel for my work. I stay here for work. Um, I've been traveling a lot for, for other reasons. Matter of fact, two Sundays ago, I was back home in Colorado, in Denver, um, at my dad's church. My dad's a pastor, and we were celebrating a significant milestone for my parents um, two weeks ago. Um, my dad and my mom started an inner city ministry. It was like a kid's camp, um, like a youth ministry um, in downtown Denver in 1972. And that eventually became a small church where they've been doing pastoral ministry for the past 50 years. They've been at the same church for 50 years and the organization they work for, the president of that organization threw a little party. And so I surprised them by showing up at church that Sunday morning. Um, but unfortunately, visits to Denver have not been that uncommon this spring. My, de- uh, my most recent trip was actually the fifth trip that I've been there since February. <clears throat> See, not only has my dad been the pastor at that church for 50 years, but it's a tiny little church. And so he kind of does a lot of the maintenance as well. Well, on February 23rd, he was cleaning snow off of the flat roof of the church, and as he was climbing down, the ladder fell. And as the ladder slipped, he rode that ladder down that one-story fall, landed on the concrete sidewalk, and broke 16 bones. <clears throat> I did not know I was going to get emotional over this. Um, he broke his pelvis. He had a compound fracture in his left arm. He broke knuckles in both hands, three vertebrae. My brother called me, he said, you need to get here. And, um, but my dad survived the fall. Somebody found him, it was one degree out that day. And miraculously, the, the, the church building actually has two stories. He climbs onto the, the one-story part, brings a ladder up, puts it on the two-story part, climbs up there, my 75-year-old dad. If there's one thing you get out of this, if you're over 70, maybe over 60, stop climbing on ladders. <clears throat> We told my dad that, by the way, beforehand. He didn't listen. Um, but if he had fallen on that one, that from the second story down to the first story and laid on that roof in one degree, he wouldn't have made it. So miraculously, he fell on the ground, and somebody that we still don't know who it was found him. 
just laying on the concrete. My dad was out of it, but he remembers getting in the uh, ambulance and uh, he spent eight days in ICU at the level, level one trauma center in downtown Denver. And there he went, underwent three surgeries. And after that, they transferred him to a skilled nursing facility um, where he spent 11 weeks doing rehab. When we first got there, they said most patients um, come in and they do rehab for about a week, maybe two tops. My dad was the longest running member of that facility at 11 weeks. And at the end of those three months, he and my mom moved into an assisted living facility where they currently live. Their house, which they've lived in for almost as long as they um, have been at that church, was built in the late 1800s and is currently not a livable option for my dad just because of the multiple levels of stairs to get into the house, to get up to the living space, and then all the other challenges that come along with a 135-year-old house that hasn't had any remodeling done in about 40 years. But even with all of that, my dad wants to go home. My parents and my dad in particular are homesick. You know, it's not surprising he wants to go home, right? I mean, that's where he feels most comfortable. He's used to the way things are laid out. He's used to the routines. That's where he can be near his ministry. Um, I don't think I mentioned it, but their house is right across the street from their church. Um, They chose all those years ago to live in that community where they minister. And so not only is that their home physically, but that's where their lives are. He wants to go home so he can be in his house, but also to his ministry, to his neighborhood, and to his friends. So I've thought a lot about what it means to feel at home over the past few months. Um but not only just because I've watched my parents' desire to go home, but actually that's what I do these days. Um, My new career, I go into people's homes, and in the month of June, I was in 30 separate homes in 30 days, an average of one home per day. So what I do these days is um, I sell and install home furnishings, primarily window coverings, um, you know, shades, blinds, shutters, those types of things. And what we do, the goal is that we, we go in to make a home more livable. We make it more secure. We make it more comfortable and more beautiful. In other words, we're trying to make people's houses their homes, right? Help them in that process. So I get, I get the privilege of being in lots of homes. And when I hire a new employee, one of the things, first things that we talk about is how the, you have to act when you're in somebody's home, right? I like to call it their sacred space, not spiritually, but that's, that's a good term to kind of help put some weight on that. When you're in someone's home, you are in their sacred space. You'll be invited into places that even the most intimate of friends don't get invited. One of the most awkward and humbling things that I get to do is stand in someone's bathtub. It does happen. As a matter of fact, I've got friends here that I've stood in their bathtub. Um, so what happens is if we're installing a light fixture over a bathtub or a window covering over a bathtub, you know, if I'm going to measure for it or install it, I have to stand there, right? So we'll cover it down. We'll take good care of it and all that. But um, I don't take that lightly. That's a sacred space. And my team and I have to treat it as such or we'll be violating the trust that the homeowner has put in us to come into their home, to take care of their sacred space and even to improve their sacred space. So all that to say, I spend a lot of time thinking about what it means to be at home what home feels like, but also what being home and having a home does to us as people. Home affects our hearts. 
how we view home is part of what makes us who we are. You know, God built us with a desire to have a home and to be home. It's part of that God-given human condition to be homesick, to have a longing to go home. So in that sense, homesickness, the type of homesickness that my parents are experiencing, is a good thing. But there's more than one side for the desire for home. So today our text is found in Luke chapter 15. We're going to start in verse 11. If you've got a paper Bible, you may want to grab that and pull that out. If you've got an electronic Bible, grab that as well. Or you can just listen along. The text is the parable of the prodigal son. It's about a home. And you've probably heard it. Um, Maybe you've heard it by a different title. Some Bibles, the Bible that I was using as I studied this, calls it the parable of the compassionate father. Whatever you call it, it's a story that Jesus told about a family and about their home. So many of you, this is probably a familiar story, even if you haven't been around a church much or at all. Because this is a parable, um, what that means is it's a made-up story. Jesus made this up. It didn't really happen. Um, The the, the people, the characters aren't real. But Jesus told this to illustrate a point. And the father in the story represents God. And the brothers in the story are meant to give the audience someone to connect to. Somebody that they can feel for or can learn from. So the passage starts off like this in verse, chapter, verse 11. It says, then Jesus said, a man had two sons. The younger of them said to his father, father, give me my share of the estate that will belong to me. So the father divided his assets between them. After a few, few days, the younger brother, the younger son gathered together all he had and he left on a journey to a distant country. And there he squandered his wealth with a wild lifestyle, it says. So the younger brother doesn't waste any time wasting all that he has. He gets after it right away. He got all this and he wasted on sinful, reckless behaviors. And then once everything is gone, you see in the next few verses, he has to find a way to survive. So he ends up getting a low-paying job, working at one of the most disgusting and demeaning uh, jobs that anyone in his culture could do. He has to throw the slop for the pigs. The job is so low paying, he can't even afford food for himself. So the slop he's given the pigs starts to actually look appetizing. And he goes from the highest of splurging to the lowest of scrimping. And hitting rock bottom made him homesick. He started to long for the familiarity of home. Even being a servant in my father's home, he reckoned, would be better than slopping pigs in a foreign country. I love how Jesus tells this next section. The younger brother says to himself, I'll get up and I'll go to my father and I'll say to him, Father, I've sinned against heaven and against you. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. Treat me like one of your hired workers. You know you're bad. You're in bad shape if you're talking to the pigs, right? Things had gotten so bad that that's exactly what he was doing. He practiced his speech on the pigs. And when he finally felt like he had his speech put together enough, when he finally felt like maybe... I can say the right things and I can present the right attitude and I can, I can go back and I can show my dad that I'll, I'll do better this time, right? So he gets up. Verse 20, it says he went to his father. Well, then something unexpected and shocking happens. 
It says, while he was still a long way from home, his father saw him and his heart went out to him. He ran and he hugged his son and he kissed him. Son starts to give that prepared speech that he'd been practicing on the pigs, but the father just cut him off. He said, hurry, bring the best robe and put it on him. Put a ring on his finger and sandals on his feet. Bring the fattened calf and kill it. Let's party. Let's party, the dad said. Because this son of mine was dead and is alive again. He was lost and he is now found. You know, it's tempting to think that Jesus' story ends there. After all, that's the feel-good ending of the story, right? It's good. But the story doesn't end there. In fact, that's not even the main point. To fully understand the story, we need just a little context. Look back in chapter 15 to verse 1. And here's what it says. We get to see who he's actually talking to. So it says, now all the tax collectors and sinners were coming to hear him. But the Pharisees and the experts in the law were complaining. This man welcomes sinners and eats with them. So first you see there's two groups of people. You've got the sinners and tax collectors. That's one group. You've got the Pharisees. That's another group. So group one, the sinners and tax collectors, they had wandered far away from God. These were people that were far from God. And they are represented in the story by the younger brother the one that had run. See, that feel-good ending talks directly to that group. It tells them when they finally get homesick enough to realize that no matter what they've done, no matter how offensive their sins, if they admit their wrongdoing, if they change directions and they humbly return to God, he will forgive and accept them. And not only that, he'll run to them with open arms. He's waiting for them to return, in fact. He's waiting, waiting and watching patiently, hopeful that they will soon return home. And when they do, he will celebrate with the biggest party he can put on. Yes, that's true. But that's not the main point. It's just the point that we want to latch on to. But there's a, a pastor and an author named Tim Keller, and he wrote a book called The Prodigal God. And he says this, he says, it's a mistake to think that Jesus tells the story primarily to assure younger brothers of his unconditional love. Yes, it does assure them of that, but that's not the primary point. Look in verse two, it says, but the Pharisees and the experts of the law were complaining. That's why Jesus told this story. The sinners were already there. The tax collectors were already there. They were trying to figure out who Jesus was. They were wanting to learn from him. But the Pharisees came around to heckle him. The Pharisees came around because they didn't like what was going on. These are the hyper-religious people. They're the opposite of group one. They spend all their time making sure that they toe the line and follow all the religious rules. They'd even make up rules about the rules to make sure that they followed the rules to the rule. Jesus was directing this parable primarily to those grumbling Pharisees. That story is to hold up a mirror to show them who they really are. And they're represented by the older brother. Verse 25, it says this. Now the older son was in the field, and as he came and approached the house, he heard music and dancing, so he called. Hey, guys, what's going on? What's all this? So they said, your brother's returned. Your father's killed the fattened calf because he's got his son back safe and sound. 
And he jumped up and cheered and got excited. No, he didn't. The older brother became angry and he refused to go in. His father had to come out and leave the party and appeal to him. But he answered his father, look, these many years I've worked like a slave for you and I never disobeyed your commands, yet you never even gave me a goat to celebrate with my friends. But this son of yours comes back He's thrown away what you gave him on prostitutes, he says. You killed the fattened calf for him. You can just hear the disgust in his voice. He doesn't even call him his brother. Then the father said, son, you've always been with me, and everything that belongs to me is yours. It was appropriate to celebrate and to be glad, for your brother was dead and is now alive. He was lost and is now found. That part of the story was aimed at the Pharisees, and they knew it. Tim Keller tells us this. The original listeners were not melted into tears by their story, but rather they were thunderstruck. They were offended, and they were infuriated. Jesus' purpose wasn't to warm our hearts. His purpose was to shatter our categories. What Jesus was trying to do with this parable was to show the audience, including us, that both brothers were wrong. Both of them were trying to control their lives. Both of them were trying to find salvation through their own efforts. And both of them were defying their father just in very different ways. And both approaches were wrong. Obviously, the younger brother's offenses, we know what those were. He ran away. He wasted his father's possessions on sinful activities. And then when he tried to find himself, you know, he tried to find himself out in the world away from his father. But he was also wrong in how he tried to make it right. His homesickness was actually misdirected. That Miranda Lambert song that Mike and Cassie sang um, just a few minutes ago, The House That Built Me has that great line in it. Apparently, life had gone awry for whoever wrote it, and so she sings about her desire to get things right by visiting her childhood home. It says, I thought if I could touch this place or feel it, this brokenness inside me might start healing. Out here, it's like I'm someone else. I thought that maybe I could find myself. See, that's the homesickness that the younger brother was feeling. The good thing is that he recognized his brokenness. But going home and trying to do things right couldn't heal him. He couldn't fix himself with hard work and good deeds. And that was his plan, right? That's what he told the pigs. I'm going to go home and I'm going to work as hard as the servants work. And I'm not going to ask for anything in return. And then maybe... Maybe my father will accept me. And that's why the father didn't give him what he asked for. He didn't give him a bed and three square meals in the servants' quarters. The father wouldn't let him work his way back into the family. He knew the only thing that would fix his problem would be to restore his relationship. That's why the father fully restored his son as a son. 
And that's why he offers that kind of relationship to us as well. God doesn't say, just come to church and it'll be all right. He doesn't say, work harder, do more good things, be more religious, and it'll be all right. God says, come to me. Start a relationship with me. That's what makes it all right. You know, I listened to that song probably a hundred times since my dad fell. And uh, it's helped me to process my parents' situation. But there's two sides of that homesickness. Cassie and I sat, st- stood in the back of the room and just chatted about that briefly before the service. Um, there's two sides of that. That desire to be home is good. That desire to come home is good. But if we think going back to the way things were, if we think working hard and proving that I'm different, I've changed, I'm I'm finally different, I'm finally coming home, if we think that's going to fix everything, then we're wrong. You know, I think about that with my parents. Trying to help them. The reason I've gone back so many times is to help them find a place to live, to help them, you know, fix up a few things around the house. And we're trying to process it. My dad called me this week and he said, you know, we're looking to get some things done on the house and I just don't know what to do. I don't know if, I don't know if I'm going to be able to continue in the same ways in ministry that I did before. I don't know if it's worth spending on this money, all this money on the house. If, if I'm not going to be able to go back to the way things were. And he's right. It's not going to be the way it was. And they're still trying to figure out the right choices to make. But if, you know, if that younger brother just went home and started to act like the older brother, he'd be worse off spiritually than he was before. So going home isn't the answer. See, the elder brother's not losing the father's love, Tim Keller says, in spite of his goodness, but because of it. It's not his sins that create the barrier between him and his father. It's the pride he has in his moral record. It's not his wrongdoing, but his righteousness that's keeping him from sharing in the feast of the father. So you realize what Jesus is saying? He's saying neither son actually loved the father. They were both using him for their own self-centered ends rather than loving, enjoying, and serving him for his own sake. This means that you can rebel against God and be alienated from him either by breaking his rules or by keeping them all diligently. That was the shocking message that Jesus was trying to get across to the Pharisees. They were just as wrong as the sinners and tax collectors just for the opposite reasons. So, so far today, I've used the word homesick in that traditional sense, right? A longing for home. But I'd like to suggest that there's a second kind of homesickness as well. And the older brother, he had that homesickness. He stayed home when the younger brother left. But in his case, he became sick or became ill because he was relying on working hard He was relying on his good behavior. He was relying on staying physically close to his father, following the rules to save himself. And putting his faith in what he was comfortable with, putting his faith in his own effort instead of in the father actually made him sicker 
not better. You know, I, I studied this and thought about it a lot over the past month. I get the luxury that Pete doesn't have where I get to think about things for months on end before I have to go up and talk about them. I don't know how he does it every week. Um, but there's one word that kept coming up in my mind. It's the word crusty. Crusty. That's a fun word, right? And I think maybe part of it's because um, Eric Chiafalo, one of Gail and Pete's sons, uh, is a radio announcer now. So he's on um, 105.3 The Fan. He just got promoted as one of the co-hosts of the Afternoon Drive program. And so now that he's kind of afternoon, I can hear him some on the radio. And I've listened to him and the other guys. And basically what it is is it's Eric who's in his 20s and one of his buddies and a couple other guys in their 20s, 30s, they're younger guys. And then this one old guy on the show, right? So they have this segment on the show called Krusty's Corner. And it's basically the old guy who's been around the block. He's worked in the NFL before. And so he kind of doesn't really like some of the newfangled methods. I, I talked to Eric this week on the phone. I said, why'd you guys call it that? And he said, well, you know, he was a scout in the NFL. And um, he doesn't like all this, um, what do they call it, analytics? He doesn't like all the new analytics and some of those things. So they just, they decided they were going to give him a, a place to vent. And on the program, it's funny it's informative. You get to hear the old guy argue against all the young guys, right, about the methods. So Krusty's Corner is this fun, catchy segment on the afternoon drive time on the sports radio program. Well, Krusty's Corner in this parable was not a fun place to be. The older brother was convinced his way was the way. He was convinced that he had it figured out. He was comfortable in his way of doing home, and he didn't want anybody to mess with his methods. He was living in Krusty's Corner. It was just as if he had stopped growing and his heart had just crusted over so hard he couldn't even love his own brother. And he thought he loved his dad, but that crust on his heart kept him from loving even his own father. Well, as you know, when Jesus told this parable, there weren't just the sinners and tax collectors and the Pharisees there. Jesus' followers were there too. And so there was always part when Jesus was talking where he was saying, let me make sure that they're getting something out of this as well. And so Jesus knew that his followers were there and he knew that we would be hearing his message as well. And so there was something in there that Jesus wanted to remind his followers and that he wants to remind us. And that's this. He said, if you, if you, like the elder brother, if you believe that God ought to bless you and help you because you've worked so hard to obey him, and you've worked so hard to be a good person, then Jesus may be your helper. He may be your example. He may even be your inspiration. But he's not your savior. You're serving as your own savior. Jesus was saying, be careful. You might be sick. You might be ill. You might be crusty and homesick in the wrong sense of the word. So I told you I go into lots of homes for work. And uh, most people are very, very kind and welcoming. Um, as a matter of fact, there's a lot of people here that I've been to your homes and y'all have treated me well. Um, but I, I have noticed a trend 
What I've noticed is the more obviously religious a home seems to be, like where there's signs and decorations on the walls to some religion, whether it be Judaism, Islam, Hinduism, but also Christianity, that they are more likely to be guarded or suspicious or unwelcoming to look down upon or be harsh towards, and dare I even say crusty, towards the people that come into their home. And that is a concerning trend. I I think we see that trend in our culture today in many ways. And it makes me wonder if many religious people have become homesick in the wrong sense of that word. See, I enter a home for a reason. I mean, I'm there to make it better, right? They're doing a home improvement project. My coworkers and I, and and lots of other people for that matter, make a living at that. And it's not a bad thing. It's a good thing to improve your home. I mean, hey, if my parents had been doing home improvement projects all along, they wouldn't be in quite this predicament. Now, my dad did, my dad's a great guy, and he never wanted to spend money on anything, especially not himself. So he just made do with whatever. But I wish he'd have paid somebody to fix the roof instead of trying to do it himself. So if they'd have been doing those things all along, they'd be in a better situation. It's not a bad thing to improve your home. But if we value our home more than the people that are in it, we have become sick. It's as simple as that. That's the bad kind of homesickness. And that's what the Pharisees had. And that's what Jesus wants us to be careful of. Last week, Mike Bream, who's our our student pastor, I love, by the way, the fact that my two daughters have gone through the student ministry here. One of them just graduated and is about to be a freshman in college and is volunteering in the student ministry now. I love that they sit underneath Mike and his teaching because he's got such deep, great, wonderful teaching and says it in such a great way. And, um, you know, my kids don't listen to me anymore, so I'm glad that they listen to Mike. So, um, well, he challenged us from Galatians 6 to live out our faith and how we treat everyone, Right? But as the passage says, especially how we treat those inside of the family of God, right? And the reason he pointed out was such a great reason. Because the way we treat our family, the people inside our homes, will either reflect God's love to an outside world or it will make us look like hypocrites, right? So if that's true, then how much more should we make sure that we are kind and welcoming and gracious when, sometime, when someone outside of our family comes into our actual homes. If you have Bible verses on your wall and religious books prominently displayed on your shelves and pictures of Jesus on the mantle, but you demean someone who comes to work in your home, you treat them like they're less than human, how do you think that reflects on your witness for Christ? Tim Keller points out again that Jesus is neither on the side of the irreligious nor the religious, but he singles out religious moralism as a particularly deadly spiritual condition. It's that deadly condition in our own homesickness in the bad sense of the word, but it's also deadly when you start to view everyone who doesn't do things the way you do them. 
uh, as, as being bad or as being wrong. The older brother didn't hate his younger brother's sin. He hated the fact that God still loved his younger brother despite his sins and that the older brother didn't get preferential treatment for staying home and following the rules. That's what hardened his heart. And interestingly, the parable ends abruptly without giving the older brother a chance to respond. You know, maybe he was stunned into silence or maybe he stomped off pouting. But whatever happened, the point's clear. The younger brother accepted the father's forgiveness and was saved through a relationship with him. The older brother did not. Jesus was trying to shake up those Pharisees, but here's the reality. How many of the Pharisees actually turn to Christ? There's a few, but Jesus knew that it wasn't likely they were going to get out of their homesickness in the wrong way. So primarily, I believe he was trying to warn his followers, and it applies to us as well sitting in these seats. He knew that we would be tempted You know, we've already decided to follow Jesus, but it would be tempting to jump into Krusty's corner and start acting like the Pharisees in how we view other people. It'd be easy to get comfortable and to, to feel at home spiritually with all the religious trappings and rituals and routines and the good things that we do for God, right? We go on mission trips for him and we forget that's not what saves us. Only a relationship with God can save us. So today, Jesus calls you and he calls me through this story to check our hearts. Um, One of the guys that I pray with and over the years have talked, you know, about life stuff with, I told him I was reading this book and I said, hey, you should pick it up and read it. And he, he picked it up and he read the first couple of chapters and he texted me and he said, which brother are you? And the unfortunate truth is if there's a tendency for me to act like one of the brothers over the other, it's the older one. So this message is for me as well. You know, what kind of homesick do you see yourself as? Which brother are you? It's all too easy to allow our hearts to go in one of these two directions. If you're like the younger brother, maybe you find yourself doing things or watching things or thinking of things that you know take you far from God. And he's today saying, come back home. He says, turn off those influences. Stop going to those places. Break off those relationships. Trade it in for a relationship with me, Jesus says. Give in to that sense of longing, that good kind of homesickness, and and come back home. But don't just rely on being home to make you better. When you go back to your childhood home, it doesn't fix everything. I've witnessed that over and over this spring with my parents. It's not the It's not the only way to get better. Coming back to your roots doesn't fix your greatest problem. The only thing that will do that is a relationship with God through his son, Jesus. Let that good sense of homesickness lead you back to a right relationship with the father today. But if you 
or like me, and your tendency is to be more like the older brother, ask yourself these questions. Have you let the comforts of your surroundings or the concerns of managing your life make you sick in your own home? Are you so stuck in your religious ways you can't even look at someone who's not like you? Have you found yourself in Krusty's Corner? And I don't mean the funny kind on the radio. Are you trying so hard to impress God with your righteousness and your good deeds that you've let that prevent you from having an actual relationship with him? How do you treat the people you meet at the grocery store or in restaurants? How do you treat the people who deliver your Uber Eats or make your coffee? Are you welcoming and kind to the lady who cuts your grass or who cleans your house? Do you treat people that you lead at work as equals in God's eyes or do you look down on them? What about people that are younger brothers in your life? I don't mean your actual younger brother, but who are living like the younger brother in this story. If you know someone that's far from God, do you avoid them and despise them? Or do you try and point them back to God in a welcoming and kind way? And if they found out you were a Christian because of the trappings around you, would that push them towards God or further from him? What if one of those younger brothers in your life came to you and said, I need help. I'm trying to find God. Would you look down on them or would you invite them to come home with you? You know, last week, I think Mike's kind of his tagline was don't grow weary in doing good. Don't grow weary in doing good. So I'm going to build on that. And I'm going to say the tagline for this week is don't rely on doing good. Don't rely on doing good. And don't let doing good make you crusty. Don't let your good and your wanting to do good and your religiousness turn people away from Christ. But here's the good news. Whichever brother you can relate to, God the Father is waiting with open arms and he will run towards you with a warm embrace as soon as you take that first step towards him. Let's pray. God, what a powerful story. Jesus, you knew how to get right to the point, didn't you? Wherever we are in this whole thing, Lord, whether we're far from you, whether we're close to you, but so crusty, so hard-hearted that we, we don't even, we can't even feel your presence. Or anywhere in between, Lord, whether we tend towards one of those or the other. God, thank you for your forgiveness. Thank you for the opportunity to come back to you. Thank you for the challenge that you gave us, Lord. May each and every one of us take that step towards you today. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.